0: like if you want a lot of prestige go be a doctor or a lawyer but if you want to just make good old fashioned money with no prestige no badge of honor probably not a lot of professional respect out there in the world be a recruiter
1: welcome to the resilient recruiter podcast this is your host mark Whitby. And my special guest today is Joe Rice. Joe is the founder and managing partner of Joseph David International, based in Phoenix, Arizona. JDI is ranked by Forbes Magazine as one of the best executive recruiting firms in America. Joe started his recruiting career in 2005 and has consistently been a top producer ever since. Welcome, Joe. Thanks for being here.
0: Thank you, Mark. Thanks for having me.
1: Awesome. So... Uh, you mentioned to me that one of your colleagues kept talking about a podcast he was listening to and you didn't realize that it was in fact this one until I approached you about being a guest on the show. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. Thanks for bringing that
0: up. I just fired him. Um, And uh, (laughs) no, actually I didn't. Um, So it's funny you brought this up right out of the gate because ever since he found out that I'm gonna come talk to you, the only thing he's told me is, hey, hey, put in a plug for me, put in a plug for me. Uh, I'm like, what does that even mean? And so anyway, his name's Michael Tallarico. Uh, I call him the Bearded Recruiter.
1: I saw his picture on your website. He's got an awesome beard. Michael, I love I love the beard. I can't
0: believe I hired a guy that looks like Michael Talarico. but uh, no, he's great. <laughs> and he kept coming in, telling me about these podcasts he's watching. And I just remember thinking... Like, that is so awesome because the way that I also ended up kind of learning a lot about this industry was listening to other recruiters and podcasts and just digging around the internet and seeing what I could find. And I stumbled into, you know, Jordan Rayboy and his story about traveling around in the RV. And at that time, I didn't even know Jordan. And I'm fortunate to have gone on to become really good friends with him. Uh, I remember listening to a lot of John Bartos stuff that was out on the internet, Um, Jeff K. Danny yep. Cahill. And so yep. I, I always say everything that I've ever learned, I'm pretty sure I, I had to have ripped it off from someone. Absolutely.
1: Well, you know, we're like-minded in that sense. I love learning and development and, you know, absorbing information and I'm constantly, you know, learning myself. That's what I love about doing this podcast is I get to learn from every person who I invite on the show, which is fantastic. And, you know, this, platform allows me to then share those conversations to benefit even more, even more people. Um, you mentioned Jordan, uh, t- in fact, the two people who both pointed me to you were, were Jordan Rayboy and Jeremy Sizemore. And, uh, I just had a really great conversation with Jordan, um, fairly, fairly recently, both really interesting, interesting guys. Uh, how do you know these characters?
0: The way I actually know Both of them is through a group called the Pinnacle Society. And um, I was, um, I started my career with a company called Snelling. And um, the way that you become eligible for Pinnacle Society, just from a a production standpoint, is um, you got to have been in the business five years. And three of those five years, you have to be over $400,000 in um, solo production. Um, And so in 2000, Twelve, or maybe eleven—I can't remember. I joined Pentacle, and I remembered being really excited because I had already knew some of these people, and I was so nervous. And they have a board of directors and a president, and I was kissing their butt, and I felt like I was joining like a like a fraternity or something. And and you know, in hindsight, it's really a relaxed, just awesome group of people. But at that time of joining um Jordan Rayboy and Jeremy were already members and my very first night of being at this conference and lobbying to you know have these people let me into this really just great group of recruiters uh, I had to sit down with Jordan Rayboy and uh, it is probably to this day one of the most memorable experiences of my life because I learned that very moment just how intense Jordan Rayboy is and and why he's such a great recruiter. But um, I won't give you the play-by-play, but we'll just say it involves spit flying out of his mouth into my face. (laughs) Lots of curse words Yes, of all the reasons why I needed to start my own recruiting firm, which is not something that the Pinnacle Society um, wants people to do necessarily. They don't want to encourage people to do that. A lot of times, uh, other people's firms are you know, really supporting them to join that group. But Jordan, Jordan's not exactly a role follower, which one of the things I love about him. And honestly, you know, he really is a big catalyst for me ever starting a firm. And then when I did go through that process, he, Jeremy, and a lot of these other great recruiters were there to give me answers to questions. I just didn't know about starting a company.
1: Fantastic. Yeah. Jordan is very intense and does swear a lot. I noticed from my uh, first meeting of him, but uh, but great guy's heart is in the right place for sure, um, and very knowledgeable. So those were both epic conversations. So I so I have, the bar is high here, Joe, for for you. Uh, oh, to man. follow in those footsteps. I should have um, been first. <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. Listen, um, you, I, I understand looking at your website and and from what I know about you that your core market is hospitality. So this must've been a pretty brutal year for you. What, what's what been your experience of the pandemic?
0: Yeah, I mean, you hit it on the nose. Um, so when I got into recruiting in 05, I was in college, I was part-time. I didn't go full-time recruiting until '06, but it was all hospitality then. You know, that's what the company that I kind of stumbled into did. And I was still in college classes. Um, and I, I just, I worked hospitality from that point up until last year. That's all I ever did. And um, it's it's very interesting. I took a little time at the end of the year here to kind of just reflect. You know, I think... Many successful people are just always moving forward, and so I wanted to stop and look back. And it was about March 11th when the NBA shut down that I realized, oh man, uh, stuff's going to hit the fan. And um, you know, if you're canceling uh, events like that, it it puts the hotel industry in peril. They live and die by groups. Las Vegas lives and dies by groups. Big cities live and die by groups. And, and I remember coming into work that week and kind of sitting down with my team and going, this is going to get really bad for us. And this is going to be really hard. And I I looked at the dates to try to figure out when did we pivot? And and it's, it's interesting, we pivoted immediately. Um, I was very fortunate that I attended a conference in January called Alice. It's uh, American Lodging Investment Summit is what it stands for. Mm. And and this is where like the president and CEO of Marriott goes. So it's like, if you want to meet a C-level executive in the hotel industry, you go here. Um, There's billionaires and just just really high-level contacts. There was one individual, there was a bunch of individuals that I didn't get to talk to. I sent out kind of like a template form email to all of them. Hey, we didn't get to talk. Let's catch up. And one of the guys connected with me, and he is a CEO for Accor Hotels in North America. And he lives in Paris. His name's Chris Cahill. And it was like February 15th. And he said to me, Joe, I can't believe nobody's paying attention to this thing. And I'm like, what thing? He's like, (laughs) the coronavirus. What? What coronavirus? That thing that's happening over there in China? What's that got to do with us? He's like, Joe? it's unreal to me. Nobody is paying attention. The hotel industry is not paying attention. The, just no one. And it's coming. It is coming. I promise. I got off that call and I remember asking a few people around me like, hey, what do you guys think about that? And they all had the same response as me. Like, what are you talking about? Like, what do I think about what? And, and I think that prepared me for March 11th when the NBA shut down to kind of go, okay, if the NBA just shut down and I didn't have that warning sign, I probably would have been like a sheep just going right off the cliff. Like, let's just keep going. But right. I dropped everything in hospitality and we pivoted into healthcare. And we started that like literally days after that. Wow! And And it was before anybody in the hotel industry told us like, we're not going to need your services, and and frankly, that's exactly what happened. We yeah. we went on to make a handful of placements last year. Uh, from that moment forward, in hotels, everything else was in um, the healthcare industry. So the um, so I experienced that pivot to be really one of the most um, difficult and trying and adverse times of my professional life. I've just been very blessed that I came into this business and hit the ground running. And I sometimes pinch myself because I haven't had a really bad, awful professional moment where I was like, where am I going to get my next paycheck? And that's exactly what I went through last year.
1: So, wow. Let me just unpack that. First of all, you know, well done for pivoting so fast because I think, most people in the world, not just recruiters, were sort of, as you say, caught off guard. And then, you know, there's a delayed response while it kind of you're processing or dealing with the reality of the situation. Right. And figuring out, well, what, what do I do now? So you guys made that decision. And why healthcare? How did you choose that of all the things you could have gone into?
0: Uh, it, you know, it's interesting. It, it, it was weird. It, I didn't go through like a, a list of different ideas. I just went right into it. And there's aspects of healthcare um, in certain settings that parallel hospitality. Um, there's okay. sectors and segments that hire hoteliers. And that was the reason I made that choice. It was the the most leverage I could have with my past to to leverage that forward to the future.
1: Makes total sense. Okay, awesome. So it wasn't such a radical departure, there were some areas that overlapped that you, in terms of your experience, your contacts that you, you could leverage?
0: Yes. And not so much um, some contacts, very, very mm-hmm. few contacts. Um, okay. But there is an intellectual capital. You know, I heard Jeff Kay and, and his organization call it um, market mastery of yes. understanding how the market works. Mm-hmm. Um, bec- there was a structure in place that was similar to a structure we were used to. Whereas I I don't know that I would have any semblance of understanding of a structure of, you know, um, IT or SAP, like Jeremy Sizemore is in, or, you know, medical science liaisons like Michael Petrack. I just, I wouldn't get it. It, it, I had some understanding of that world in front of me as well.
1: Got it. Got it. So we're talking about, I'm looking at your website now. Are we talking about senior living? Is that the kind of space that you're focusing in on? Yes. Got it. Got it. Well, look, I, I, it makes total sense based on what you said. And it's a, it's a growth, it's a growth market as well. So um, now what were the steps that you took? Cause you're then ba- essentially rebuilding something from scratch. So it's almost like you're, although you have the market mastery that you mentioned, but as far as building a business, you're, you're almost starting over. So what, how did you what, walk me through the steps?
0: Yeah, some of the steps were similar to starting uh, the business the first time. And it, it really did feel like starting a new business, except not, not quite as much of a dumbass as the first time. <laughs> you, know, I had, you know, a little bit more the second time. Um, the first step that I took when I started JDI, I, I always had this thing that bugged me about recruiting. I didn't understand why I would search for the same thing over and over and over again from the standpoint of the same industry, the same job title. And yet, I would start every search on this meandering path of finding people like a spider web when it should be like opening up a a chest and having everything inside of there and going in and plucking out what you need, so to speak. So what we did was we went out and found as much data as possible to put it into our database so we have been far less reliant on LinkedIn, um, mm. Indeed, um, any website up until making this pivot. We never uh, subscribed to any internet-based ways of finding candidates. We actually researched where they work, and we put them in their in our database. And and we kind of started our journey here doing the same thing. We went out and found as much data as we could on the, and we defined the parameters of the space that we were in. You know, and I I did this in a a talk I gave one time where we we paralleled it to marriage. You know, the first thing that happens before you get married is you kind of, you have an idea of who you're attracted to and that's the industry that you're in. Um, But then you have to have uh, a way to, you know, you have to have a a way to, you know, get introduced to them. And for me, it's kind of having their name, their email address, a way to make contact. And so we went out and found as many names and email addresses as possible, put them into our database Labeled them. Um, we used some tools to do that. We used a, a tool called WeConnect, and I'll give them yeah. a plug since I just pulled the plug on WeConnect. Um, we don't we don't need the service anymore, but it it scrapes LinkedIn, and yeah, it, you I've can it. put in keyword searching and bring back names and email addresses. So that was our first step. Uh, the second step that we did was we actually sent messages out to hiring managers in that space, basically saying. Hey, we have a, a differentiator. We have spent our whole lives recruiting in the hospitality industry, and we have a ton of those people and access to more of them than anyone. We can bring them to you. And it's interesting because we've done that very little, believe it or not. Hmm. But that message in the mass of messages that people are receiving, it was a differentiator and it got us on the phone with several people. But, um, it was a journey to get to that first that first signed fee agreement, and it was a journey to get to the first placement. But that was kind of our, our starting block, if you will.
1: Fantastic. You know, it's, it's amazing to hear you say that. My colleague Leanne, when she hears this uh, podcast, is going to be smiling because we're sort of on a mission with my Inner Circle coaching group of getting everyone to delineate their market niche and then you know, map that whole market and build data sets. So they are building their own proprietary database as an asset for their business. And they're not like LinkedIn is in the first place they go every time they get a search. Um, and we keep saying, look, LinkedIn is a fantastic tool and we have processes and systems for, you know, generating leads on LinkedIn for doing content marketing on LinkedIn for recruiting on LinkedIn. But if more than 20% of your placements are coming from one place, then that's a problem. Because in fact, just the other day, one there was a frantic message on my WhatsApp group, one of, one of the ladies had her LinkedIn account switched off without any warning and without any like there was no th- there was no uh, warning saying hey by the way you know we're restricting your account you're you're not following the the terms of use or whatever it was just gone she couldn't log in and in order to fix that you have to raise a support ticket but you need to be able to log in to get a support ticket so then you're in this catch 22 place where you can't even no one at linkedin will talk to you she didn't even know what she'd uh, what she'd done wrong and uh, what it turned out was she had her virtual assistant logging into her LinkedIn account from another IP address. And, you know, that was enough for LinkedIn just to switch off. Now she managed, for, there was a happy ending. She did manage to get reinstated with some groveling. And, you know, she, she basically leveraged every avenue she could think of to get a hold of them. But uh, it just was the, the thing with LinkedIn, you don't own LinkedIn, Right. You don't own that data. You think you have all these contacts. You don't own it. So whereas if you build your own database and your own email list and your own, you know, these are assets that you actually own. So that makes um I think it's a smart, smart move. Sorry, a slight yeah. tangent there, Joe. You just hit no, on you, a subject that but I but
0: you you nailed it. I mean, you just encapsulated my very thinking. And and there's another aspect to it too, Mark. You know, if you think about just the, the laws of science, there's a fixed number of individuals qualified for any one job. It's not like yeah. you can just go take the plumber down the street and turn him into the vice president of whatever. There's a fixed number of people qualified for that job. And if you want to give yourself the highest likelihood of finding them, you need to have every one of them at your fingertips. Otherwise, you're going to find candidates. But how do you know they're the best candidate, unless you've got every single one of them and you've made contact with every single one of them. So to me, it's 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 the science of recruiting.
1: Yeah, no, absolutely. Since you're listening to this podcast, it tells me that you're someone who's interested in personal growth and business improvement. That's something we have in common. I really enjoy listening to podcasts, reading and listening to business books, watching TED Talks but by far the most important investment I've made in my own development has been working with a coach. It started back in 1999, 2000, when I was working as a recruiter. I hired a coach and he helped me to double my billings in 90 days. It was, it sounds corny, but it was really a life-changing experience. Since then, I've worked with various coaches almost continuously over the years, and it's made a massive difference to my own personal and business success. In fact, that first experience of working with a coach was the catalyst for me ultimately deciding that much as I loved recruitment, my true purpose was to become a coach and enable others to achieve their full potential. Fast forward to today, and I work with recruitment business owners to help them escape the feast and famine roller coaster and create consistent, predictable billings. If you'd like to know more, you can apply for a free strategy session at recruitmentcoach.com forward slash breakthrough. So let's go to the next step. So you quickly chose an, a sector that you felt you could do well in. You then set about building the ultimate, you know, database of everybody in that, in that industry, building out their contact information and so on. You had some email marketing campaigns where you focused on a differentiator something that you could bring to that market that your competitors didn't. What, what did you do from there?
0: Yeah. I mean, you know, what's interesting. So, you know, just for everyone out there, you know, I worked a, a solo desk and that was really my primary focus. In addition to from the the day I started JDI, you know, we had two or three people, but we were boutique in nature. Um, 2016, we probably had five people. And then 2017, I started unhinging from a, a solo desk and trying to grow into that more CEO role. Because when you own a recruiting firm, sure, you can call yourself the CEO, but your your job description kind of defines your job title, really. And so up to that point, I wasn't a CEO. And then I tried pivoting um, and successfully into being a CEO 2017, 2018, 2019, and heading into 2020, where you would see my solo desk production kind of go like this, and that was exactly what I wanted because I wanted my production to go like that, but the companies to go like that so that right. I could, you know, get off the desk. And, you know, I've sat down and talked to folks like like Danny Cahill or Jeff K about that very thing. And, and that's part of it. So, I was very much off of a desk in, in many parts, you know, up to March and still doing a lot of um, biz dev client management, but hadn't really picked up the phone to recruit a candidate in a long time you know um, hadn't really made a lot of cold calls to get new clients uh, in a while and and so I got to have a very stark contrast when I did jump back on a, a full desk eventually that this business hasn't really changed that much it's eerie that it's probably one of the few businesses that really hasn't innovated much they've tried to innovate but it really hasn't And the way that we made this turn was just good old-fashioned hard work. There was nothing scientific or magical beyond getting the data. And at that point, it was phone calls, email, and activity. All those things that we think about with activity and getting into phone calls. And it was just
1: barbaric, caveman-like recruiting. <laughs> okay, so what does first of all? What's your definition of hard work? Like what an activity? Like what sort of things were you guys doing? What's a what was a typical day?
0: Yeah, typical day is uh, honestly picking up the phone and making you know seventy phone calls to try nice. to get business. Yeah, you know, um, sending out mass emails, which is is effective. Um, but uh, using any mode of communication you can in an yeah. outbound manner to land a phone call of some sort, yeah. you know, to, to try to uh, make someone aware of who we are and what we can do for them. And our messaging started out, we've done hotel recruiting. We can help you bring that talent to your industry. And it pivoted into, we do healthcare recruiting. We can help you find those types of individuals. Right.
1: Well, I, I suppose once you got into it, then you developed that expertise and you could legitimately claim to to specialize in that, right? So the messaging yeah. evolved. Um, really interesting. And what I love about that story is I find, uh, like, I'm I'm a big believer in the good old-fashioned telephone and in digital marketing as well. I think it's a combination that is kind of the recipe for success, but- a lot of people before the pandemic got a bit seduced. Like they kind of forgot that what recruiting really was. And they got used to, you know, they sent out emails and they sent out LinkedIn messages and they were able to do deals and they got seduced into thinking, Oh, this is the new way. This is how we work now. And they forgot about the fundamentals of what they initially made them successful. And it's a it's a rude awakening to then have to get back to that. And some people just couldn't really, they couldn't really make that adjustment um, because the volume of activity you're talking about, the fact is most people are not willing to do that. You know, uh, uh, so if someone's making five calls a day and saying, this isn't working, there's no business out there. To me, I'm like, well, you haven't, you can't really say that yet because you haven't spoken to enough people. Like if you, if you make 70 calls a day for a month and don't get a single job, then, you know, there's a, uh, there is a problem in your industry. You need to focus on a new industry. Right. But um, so you guys did caveman uh, recruiting. I like it. Um, and what happened? You know, it took time.
0: You know, I I, yeah. I went back and looked at it, and the first um, just marketing call that I took with a uh, with someone outside of the hospitality industry was was March 20th, and one of my recruiters at the time who who left us last year, great guy, but just realized like, man, this pivot isn't for me. Uh, his name's Ryan McKellips. He got us on a phone call with a company to talk about bringing them hospitality talent. That was March 20th. And subsequently we, we, subsequently we went on to have several more calls like that over the course of the next month. but it took us a solid, probably 30 days to get that first signed fee agreement. So wow, you really think about that and you know persistence is, is kind of the engine. It's the engine. And um, I heard someone you know speak on this this morning actually, and, and the fuel is faith you know believing that this this is going to work out for you and so my job in a lot of ways was to try to instill persistence and and demonstrate persistence and instill and demonstrate faith and and because the results didn't come immediately it was a lot of hard work and and we have a little saying we have around here we call it hustle and grind you know i i always have always said recruiters are really kind of like um white collar garbage men and women. <laughs> I mean, okay. this is not, this is not a, like, if you want a lot of prestige, go be a doctor or a lawyer. The, you, go work at a university. But if you want to just make good old fashioned money with no prestige, no badge of honor, probably not a lot of professional respect out there in the world, be a recruiter. You know, we're six figure garbage men, I say. And and that's basically what we went into. And um, at any rate, we ended up getting our first contract probably within 30 days. We got our first placement, a signed offer letter, June 8th. Okay. Our second so, placement was like June 29th. So, so, from March, the middle of March until the end of July, two placements. And, and as a company... You know, you think about, you know, and, and I think a lot of times if you work for a recruiting firm, myself included when I did, you don't understand that a placement doesn't mean a check that just came through the door. It actually means like the promise, the hope of a check that comes through the door. Right. So we're, we, we went through an entire April of zero billings. Yeah. Uh, so, so we went on a stretch of losing money as a business. So maintaining that persistence and faith was not easy. But uh, th- those first two placements came in June, and it was kind of like, I, and I, I will tell you, as a man of faith myself, I, I spent a lot of time praying. That was my fuel. That was my fuel to kind t- of, kind of get through that, to have that persistence. But that's kind of the beginning of that pivot. It, it was very hard.
1: Amazing, amazing fortitude there and and character because. Um it's a long time to go without getting paid and with no absolute certainty. I know you had faith, which uh, which is which is awesome, but um, you were operating on faith, right? You had you there was no guarantee that you got that this was going to pay off. So, man, um, so how, how did things go from there? Well, you know, it
0: was um, it was a trying summer you know because while we did get those first two placements in june and it's so funny how your your um your paradigm changes when when your world gets shaken up you know if we did you know if we had a a month where we produced 2 or 300,000 as a company it was kind of like golf clap <laughs> and now now one placement one placement, and I was like, "Release the balloons! Let's celebrate!" <laughs> it, your paradigm changes, and and honestly, right. there's a little blessing in that—the just the the uh, humility, and also the awareness of how blessed you really have been. It's it's a good wake up call. Um, but July, I, I think we did one placement the whole month, and it was a healthcare placement. It was a teeny, tiny little fee. Our average fees in our company are about 30000 This was about a third of that. We probably, the last several years, had maybe 1% of every invoice we send out is under $15,000. And so we had a little baby placement in July. And I just remembered just kind of this feeling in the office of like, it felt like the dog days of summer where maybe you're working outside and you're digging a ditch, and you know whatever movie you've seen, people sweating and working hard. It and and no reward. It really felt like that. And even I was struggling to kind of go. How do I motivate myself? How do I try to motivate these folks here? And um, I, I will tell you one significant finding I had is the power of team. Mm. You know, um, a team. Everyone has their role in that, but. The way that some people stepped up, I mean, it was just inspirational. And Michael Tallarico is one of them. That guy just has a motor and he just, he didn't change. He worked hard before the pandemic. He worked hard after the pandemic and he kind of followed in blind faith and just kept working hard. And, and we lost people. You know, we yeah. went from a team of 12 people down to a team of five people. Mm-hmm. And some of those, unfortunately, we had to make the decision to, to make that change because we, we we no one that left our company was someone that we didn't love, but we had to make those changes. And some people had to make the decision to opt out. They weren't able to make the same amount of money. We had a single mom whose yeah. um, compensation we had to reduce, and she had to make the business decision to provide for her family. Um, but as the CEO who just cares about everybody it was really painful to go through not only this difficulty making money, but watching these people leave and, and knowing you couldn't fault them for it. But the ones that stood by and fought with you, that provided me so much inspiration um, mm. to, to get me through that year. That was just so powerful. And as a recruiter, something I never really thought about. I've always mm. thought about it as just a it's a it's an individual sport, you know, like swimming or something you you go out yeah. there and compete on your own and and it's a team sport it really is
1: awesome that's that's uh that's a huge positive takeaway from that you know the 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 tightness of the team that's that stayed uh you guys must be um like unstoppable now so you know what kind of enduring strategies or lessons are you taking forward that you think you know, changes you've made that will you'll continue with even as the market, you know, hopefully in 2021 here gets better and better?
0: Yeah, so, you know, I've always thought that uh, the end game of our activity is to get on a phone call. Yeah. So whether it's a, um, an MPC voicemail, hey, I've got a candidate, do you need a candidate type of call or an MPC email, a LinkedIn message on the marketing side of the business, the end game is you really want to establish a phone call and establish a relationship that whether now or at some point down the road leads to a business relationship. And the, the core tenets of that haven't changed. And so it doesn't necessarily matter how you do that. Um, but I've noticed having kind of taken a little break in between in the, the middle of my career here of kind of getting off the desk a little bit and now getting back on it full-fledged that. Um, there have been some slight changes to my thinking. Um, there's so much communication out there uh, that you know if you think that one email is going to be looked at and read, and you don't want to hurt someone's feeling by sending another one, you're you're wrong. You know, it probably takes three, four, five, six, seven emails. Um, calling someone one time isn't enough, and I'm a very persistent person. I think it's been one of my you know, keys to success. And, and so persistence is more important now than it's ever been. Yeah. The second thing is getting on a phone and establishing a relationship. Interestingly enough is not as important. You know, one of the folks I work with here said that in the dating world now, people kind of jump into bed first, get to know each other second. Now (laughs) I, I I don't personally agree with that. I don't, I've been married for 12 years now and, and, um, I have not been a perfect angel leading up to that, but I don't think that's the way it's supposed to be done. But that's not what we're here to talk about. But I think in a lot of ways, recruiting's like that now. It used to be you get to know each other and then you jump into bed and do some business together. And and what I'm finding is it's it's the opposite. I'm jumping into bed with clients to just transactionally get a recruiting assignment from them. And then I get to know them and build a winning relationship. And the way that that's changed my um, strategic approach at a tactical level, my emails that I send out now—they're not requesting to get into a phone call with you. I'm sending marketing emails that say, "I've got a candidate who has done this, 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 this." They're looking to make a change right now. Do you want to see the resume? Hmm. And 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 I'm sending the resume. If they ask for it, blind it, you know, to protect the, the person that I'm sending and, and, you know, having conversations with these people before, you know, setting them up to maybe, you know, be the catalyst for that next job search. But that, that transactional approach is actually probably more effective right now, in, at least in my industry, than a huh. relational approach. And, and through this transactional approach, um, we're getting signed fee agreements. We're doing searches and the best sermon you could ever give on being a great recruiter is a a firm demonstration of sending them top talent. That's it. And so once you get that signed agreement, your relationship is fortified with your ability to deliver talent. Um, On the recruiting side, Mark, it's just, uh, for me, it's crazy. Like I sit there and make phone call after phone call after phone call leaving the same message about a search that I have and and I mean I get a search and I immediately just pick up the phone and I start calling people and telling them about the search that I have I'm going to support that with an email that'll go out there but it's not it used to be I would send an email to the candidates and I would sit back and wait for the responses and I would you know facilitate from there it's now just tactical warfare pick up the phone And it's a numbers game. Call, 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 call on the recruiting side of that. And then the other thing that we've done really, really well that everyone should be doing, I've noticed that this, it comes as maybe common sense to some and to others. I feel like recruiters have tunnel vision. You have to understand the value of every phone call you're in. And so probably the greatest source of new job orders and business for me is recruiting. Yes. If I'm doing a recruiting assignment for a hiring manager, I know some of them get a little creeped out that you just talked to them about their career, you just told them about a job and then you end the call by going, "What can I do for you? What searches can I fill for you?" I know we're talking about your career, but most of my most of my clients are candidates to me. I help them with their career and I help them find top talent. I'm doing a lot of these types of searches, these types of searches. What or I'm saying, hey, I just got a great so-and-so, so-and-so. Do you want to see the resume? But and it's it's not all the time. And Jordan was in our office about two months ago, and he gave a little talk for everybody. And he said something that I love. He said, average recruiters sometimes do what great recruiters do. You know, And, and I'm going to botch what he said, but he basically said, but great recruiters, they always, every single time, they do these actions. Not sometimes. Right. They Great recruiters always do what me, mediocre recruiters do sometimes. Right. And this, is, this isn't this is a very complex business. Every time I talk to someone who could hire a candidate from me, I try to get business from them. And then we, we kind of say it being in the, in the clench of the pit bull. Once the pit bull gets its hands on you, you could say no. You can say no today. You can say no tomorrow, six months from now, a year from now but the pit bull has sunk his teeth in. you're going to be my client one day. Do you want to do business now? <laughs> you want to do business later? When do you want to do business? Cause we're going to do business. And that's, that's the mentality you got to have. If, if, if you are a top producer or want to
1: be a top producer. All right. I love the pit bull analogy. That's a, that's a good one, but let me t- play devil's advocate here, Joe, because I'm not sold on this get into bed first, get to know you later idea. Um, what if you get into bed and then you go, "Oh well, yikes! I don't like this person I'm in bed with." Um, then that can get that can get ugly. You know what? How does that work if you are, you know, I'm thinking of a, a situation which arose from a, a very transactional place of, you know, they like this, they like the resume. Yep. Uh, let's interview the candidate, but because of the, um, the pace and and the way that it's come about, you know, what if we discovered later that actually they're not a good employer or they actually don't want to pay your fee? Or, I mean, I can think of an, a dozen different problems that can happen if you haven't, you know, set this up correctly in the, in the beginning. So, you know, what, what's your, you know, surely there's a place for both. It's not either or right. Can't we, um, like thinking about tactical versus strategic, does it have to be just tactical? Can't we do tactics and strategy simultaneously?
0: Yeah. You know, anybody that's ever worked alongside of me over the years has heard me say, and I, I, I stole this from a book called Good to Great by Jim Collins. Oh yeah. And he calls it the tyranny of or and the genius of and. And so for us, it's not this or that. It is this and that. So you're absolutely right. We are never tunnel vision that we are doing this. A successful recruiter, you know, and and maybe if you're out there listening um, and you're a you lead a team of recruiters or you're a recruiter, you've maybe heard, I'm gonna do this. This is what I'm going to do. And and I've been in that situation to hear someone say that, and I go, well, yeah, do that. But that in and of itself is not enough. And I've always described that that desk of business I have on the side of clients as a portfolio uh, of investments with your money. You know, if anybody's ever had any amount of money to invest and they've talked to someone about that, they would say, diversify. And it's the exact same thing with your approach on business development. You have to diversify. And there's approaches that are very transactional that could land a right now piece of money and there's there's strategies that could land a then piece of money and quite frankly some of those strategies are all of the above my transactional approach of do you want to see a resume right now it's not because i want to be transactional
1: it's because
0: it's because there's so much noise at least in the lives of the, the folks that i'm working with that a conversation there's no time for that. You've almost got to lead with the transaction to use that as the way to get that conversation, that relationship. I hear you. And, I hear and you, you. got to be discerning because you don't, you don't want to represent bad companies. And, and depending on how niched you are, you probably already have a little awareness of who you're getting into bed with. Um, and if you're very, very broad and you're a generalist, I, I don't know that this approach changes the fact that you just don't know.
1: Hmm. Well, listen, one thing I agree with you 100% is the persistence piece and the fact that you need to follow up multiple times, you know, whether it's telephone, email, or whatever channel, you know, we're communicating on. Um, We actually use a tool, I'll give them a plug, called Interceller. It's uh, an email outreach uh, tool. And you set up campaigns where, you know, you send the first email and if people don't respond... Then, you know, three to, you know, seven days later, you send another one and then the following, you can set up however many you want. Um, And it's amazing how many people respond to the second or third email, but they didn't respond to the first one. And if you hadn't sent the subsequent messages, you would have just lost that opportunity without even realizing how much money you're leaving on the table.
0: Yeah, Um, absolutely.
1: So, look, uh, what... What's 2021 look like for JDI? You know what? What are your plans for for rebuilding and and getting even stronger?
0: Yeah, you know, I'm a, a um, an A type personality. You know, and and Jordan Rayboys an A type personality. Jeremy is. We've had some epic fights, by the way, <laughs> like some really? epic okay. fights. Jordan and I are probably like two brothers that um, love each other do anything for each other but probably will will come darn near close to killing each other four or five times in the course of a lifetime <laughs> and uh, and Jeremy much the same and one plug about Jeremy nobody can do a better handstand than Jeremy he was over <laughs> at my house and I'm in Phoenix Arizona everybody has a pool out here uh, I got a pool and Jeremy's in my pool and it's five feet where we're standing talking it's kind of evening time having a couple drinks and and uh, He can do a handstand anywhere. And I was like, you know, Jeremy, you couldn't do a handstand from five feet deep of water out of the pool. There's no way. And Jeremy's like, I mean, at this time, he's not quite 40, you know, but he's like, you know, approaching 40. He's not in bad shape, but he's not in great shape. And that man does a, a handstand right up out of the pool. Unreal. So, anyways, anybody that ever hangs out with Jeremy, Ask him to do a handstand. It could be a Ritz-Carlton restaurant and he'll do a handstand on the chair. Um, Anyways, that had nothing to do with the question you asked me, but funny story nonetheless. Um, We ended up finishing up the year having one of the best quarters we've ever had in the history of our company.
1: Oh, awesome.
0: And um, I I think as an A-type personality, just like Jeremy and Jordan and many others that come on here probably, I'm always wanting to look ahead. And I think for this year, uh, for me, I, I just want to, I want to let uh, things happen organically, and I want to deliver a great service and, and product to the end users, to the candidates and clients that we work with. I, I want to uh, do my best to support those that work around me, uh, for them to make six figures, and um, you know, take it a day at a time. But in terms of what our outlook looks like. I, I would not be surprised if we had a record-setting year this year just by simplifying. And I think one of the mistakes I've made in the past is honestly trying to leverage all of the technologies and, and every efficiency that you can imagine to um, to do this business. And, and I, I think we're going to end up having a record year with less people than we've had in past years. By being more focused on just the simple aspects of this business, which is honestly that hard work and persistence, and it comes into activity. You know, how often are you picking up the phone? How much time are you spending on the phone? So what I forecast for this year is just really enjoying this amazing business and the simplicity of it and how beautiful that is of of just working hard and making great income doing it you know honestly and I, I do forecast that we could have our best year ever and the only thing that stands in the way is complacency keeping yourself motivated and working hard will get us there
1: well said that's uh, that's awesome you know tony robbins says that when you succeed then you tend to celebrate and when you fail you tend to ponder and that's when you kind of really you know dig deep and figure out what what do I need to change up and how do I need to move forward in order to get you know to get the success that i that i want um so you know hopefully that's momentum you've got on your side will uh will will carry on uh listen you i think i noticed on your LinkedIn profile that you're a partner in a technology platform is that still you have mogul recruiter can you tell me about that?
0: Yeah, I'm still a partner there. In fact, uh, the CEO and I have a Zoom call tomorrow. Um, I met this individual at one of the conferences. You know, as we started moving up up chain, if you will, in hospitality, you know, we started getting face to face, front and center with with you know C level folks, and that was really where I wanted to go. I really enjoyed recruiting those folks, and I met someone while I was on a panel at a conference talking about recruitment, hiring. Um, And he was on the panel with me. And he was starting up a technology platform that, long story short, would definitely be a competitor of mine. And Mm. um, fortunately, JDI, we were probably, you know, the top hospitality recruiting firm in the country as far as from the standpoint of those that that might, you know, if you were to ask the hospitality industry, we'd probably be the most known. But so, I, I would think there'd always be a, a, a shrapnel of, of revenue for us, but this is a technology that could kind of take a lot of our business or put us out of business. And I thought, boy, that seems like something that could happen where you could take a platform like a LinkedIn and mm-hmm. curate it to only the people that your eyes want to see that are maybe a luxury hotelier. Um Maybe they've worked for only these types of brands in a way that LinkedIn can't do, mm-hmm. and, and there are companies out there in IT that have built platforms like this that have kind of inspired their idea. Um, I think they too are are you know set back by what's happening in hospitality, but um, this is just an amazing platform. So I actually put some skin in the game uh, to become a partner, and then. Uh, with some participation and providing some support to them, also was gifted some shares in the company. So I'm a a partner and, and a minority partner, for sure. I'm not involved in the day-to-day operations. Um, they have me listed as an advisor on their website. But um, it, it's something that I certainly believe has potential to be something very big.
1: Hmm. It's a smart, it's a smart move, Joe, you know, just think about the blockbuster executives who were offered the chance to buy Netflix and they passed, you know, they, they must just, I don't know how you get over so, like a decision like that. Right. So I I'm not suggesting you're a blockbuster. There's, I don't believe that technology is going to um, remove the role of a, of a recruiter. Um, I think, that we're always going to have a place where clients want the added value. And, you know, there's so much that we can do that, a, you know, a AI tool can't. But having said that, there's no question, technology is going to take a piece of the pie. And um, so you may as well own that, own a piece of that as well.
0: Yeah, you know, we had Danny Cahill come talk to our team and I actually share an office now with Matthew Walsh. And I don't know if he was on your show or not, no, um, but uh, he's a real big biller, um, and he also has a big recruiting company uh, called Blue Signal. We we I moved into his office last year. We decided to join forces. We're really good friends, and we thought it'd be cool to share an office. And also, with everything going on financially, was great too. And um, at any rate, um, Danny came and spoke to our two teams and said that it is technology is going to change the game. It's not going to make us obsolete, but he did look out at every one of us and said, but many of you will be obsolete. It's only going to be those who are the power brokers that are going to survive. Uh, You will need someone to still move talent. And it will oftentimes be at the higher levels, but someone that has relationships and also has the soft skills to move talent. So that's not going away.
1: Yeah. Yeah. You're right about the soft skills, the relationships, you know, I think technology is going to have a bigger impact on the sort of sourcing, you know, candidate identification, you know, but the, you know, conversations and understanding motivators, understanding, you know, what's driving people to make the decisions that they're, that they're making and influencing those decisions. I can't see a way for a bot to be able to do that piece.
0: No, I can't either. And, you know, one thing um, that I would say keeps a lot of people from really, you know, succeeding in recruiting, I think a lot of people approach it as like a possibly maybe type of a career. Yeah. Like I heard maybe you can make good money in this business, so I'm going to give it a try. Right. And, you know, what I've witnessed is, is um, having experienced what many would in my shoes, more failures than successes. I think the biggest thing that people Fall short on, and, and it probably trickles into a lot of things they do. Is they just don't go all in, and I think as many techniques and tactics that people can pick up watching your show, just going all in and, and giving and committing mentally. And I've heard Danny Cahill say that, you know, that you have to commit wholeheartedly and fully to this business. And if you do that for a year and this isn't the right business for you, you know, then it's not the right business. But You'll never be great until you do that. You can't have one foot in and one foot out.
1: Well said. Agree 100%. Um, well, look, that's probably a good place to, to wrap up, Joe, because that's a, a really strong, positive statement. Go all in. I, I can't, couldn't agree more. Um, that's the that's recipe for success in everything, I think, and particularly in, in recruiting. So thanks, Joe. I've really enjoyed this conversation.
0: Yeah. Thank you, Mark. I really appreciate it.
1: Thanks for having me on. Thank you so much for listening to The Resilient Recruiter. If you've enjoyed the show, the best way you can show your support is to click that subscribe button. Thanks again, and I'll see you next time.